Support for this podcast comes from San Francisco International Airport. At SFO, you can discover award-winning flavors and unique shops all before takeoff. Learn more about what's at SFO at flysfo.com. Hey, it's Glenn Washington from Snap Judgment. And if you love what you're hearing, and I know you love what you're hearing, please consider becoming a KQED member special access to cool events behind the scenes footage and so much more plus you'll sleep better at night knowing you did your part for the community you depend upon it's in you please be in it visit donate.kqed.org slash podcasts to sign up now that's podcast with an s thanks from kqed For families across California, it's been quite a school year. School as we knew it looked and sounded and felt so different. These new phrases became part of our regular vocabulary, like hybrid, outdoor classrooms. Hey, Lily and friends outside, have you written your name where it says name? Full Zoom. I also want to remind you that your participation credit goes up if your camera is on. And over the last couple weeks, marking the rite of passage of ending a school year has felt totally different, too. Vaccine-verified proms, socially distanced graduations. And ladies and gentlemen, that is class of 2021. This past year impacted students in so many different ways. Some really struggled, some thrived, and for some of our kids, it felt like a little bit of both every day. All right, you guys, let's stop fighting. Come on. I'm Sasha Coca, and this is the California Report magazine. This week, we're going to hear how, for some teenagers, being stuck at home led to a new phenomenon on social media. It gave them a chance to reflect on some of the trauma they experienced before the pandemic and share their stories. It's so vividly burned into my mind. Every time I'm reminded of it, I relive that moment and feel the pain I felt. Every class, he would repeatedly ask me out as a joke, meaning it was a joke that anyone would ever like me. And the class would laugh. The teacher never did or said anything. These are some audio reenactments of Instagram posts from teens in Los Gatos and San Diego County. And a warning to our listeners, these stories involve accounts of sexual harassment and assault. And of course, everyone believed him. He was one of the most popular guys in the junior class, star of the football and baseball team. And I was just a little 14-year-old freshman, scared to death. As KQED's Holly J. McDeed tells us, these young women say advocating for change during the pandemic has been both uplifting and overwhelming. Lynn has played the flute since she was 10 years old, and it's a big part of her identity. Music is how she stays calm. Especially in high school, band was like my the main thing in my life. Like, all my friends were in band, everything revolved around band. It was like, I don't know, definitely very important to me. We're only using her middle name to protect her privacy. Lynn is a senior at Mira Mesa High School in San Diego County, and she's taking on a lot for any teenager. She's running an Instagram account called Me Too in SD, where students anonymously share experiences of harassment and assault. I mean, I kind of 
started, I wouldn't say a trend, but the movement at my school. Lynn says she was in an abusive relationship with a boy she started dating when she was a sophomore. She says he would pressure her into sending explicit photos and that he sexually assaulted her. He denies the allegations. Lynn says she wishes she had better education around what healthy relationships are supposed to look like. All my friends, they tried very hard to get me to leave. I just, I didn't want to listen because, you know, I was gaslighted to the point where I thought, oh, it means, you know, he loves me or whatever, which obviously is not true. But when you're in it like that, it feels like it is true. After the relationship ended in 2019, her mom found diary entries on Lynn's phone describing the abuse and reported the ex-boyfriend to the school. Lynn and her ex-boyfriend were both in band. But there were times where, you know, there was a concert and I walk into the storage room, he's right there, and I just left. I couldn't be there. And in the hallways, in the library, I still had to see him. The ex-boyfriend says he was never disciplined. The school district declined to comment on the case, citing privacy laws, but said that allegations of assault are taken seriously. Last summer, Lynn saw an Instagram account set up for San Diego students to share stories of sexual abuse. That made her feel comfortable sharing hers too. Her ex-boyfriend saw her post and left a carton of eggs outside her house. She says if that was the worst that could happen, there was no reason to be afraid. So that's when I decide, like, okay, he does not have this power over me. She went from posting her own story to running the Me Too in SD Instagram page. It has over 1,300 followers. Many of the posts include the names of alleged perpetrators, both students and teachers. The stories are posted anonymously and have not been verified. Lynn says she's received threats for running the account. If I stop, then that's letting them win, and I refuse to do that, so... I just kept going. A spokesperson with the San Diego Unified School District said the district has made police aware of the account and that allegations made anonymously are difficult to investigate. The spokesperson said the district has also worked with student leaders to get the word out about how to recognize and report abuse. People are still sending Lynn their stories. He took away all of my firsts without considering my consent. I dropped out of band the following year because I just felt like no one was on my side. I felt bad and I didn't tell him to stop because I was scared that he would be mad at me. Occasionally, she takes breaks from reading the post for the sake of her own mental health. There are dozens of accounts like Me Too in SD throughout California, including one for students in the affluent Silicon Valley town of Los Gatos. From the outside, LG is idyllic. Perfect teens and perfect clothes from perfect families. And don't forget the money. But like most seemingly perfect things, you just can't see the cracks. Yet. That's from a film made by a Los Gatos high school senior about the Me Too campaign happening at her school. The post read, I'm not sharing this post for sympathy, but to be heard. Earlier this year, on February 8th, I was raped. That post inspired other students to share their stories and eventually set up their own Instagram account. Since then, more than 100 students and alums have shared their experiences with harassment and assault. The entire senior class, guys and girls, made chants with my name, slut-shaming me. And in that moment, I truly wanted to be dead. 
I didn't want to tell my friends because I was afraid they would think I was making the whole thing up. Believe it or not, I ended up apologizing to him after that encounter. We always find a way to blame ourselves. In response to the wave of stories online, Los Gatos High School students held a rally on the football field last July. But I believe words have power, and if saying this out loud gives others reason to as well, then I will. That's Abby Berry. She graduated from Los Gatos High School in 2018. She's one of the organizers of a new advocacy group, From Survivors for Survivors. She looked out at the football field and told everyone she was a survivor. And I'm a survivor of sexual assault, harassment, and rape. And I still believe in the power of words. Thank you. Unlike the San Diego account, Los Gatos students didn't name perpetrators online. But student organizers say there was still a lot of pushback in response to the attention they were bringing to the football team. Abby says athletes are glorified at the school, and that allowed them to get away with abuse. Last summer, Abby wrote an email calling on the school to confront its rape culture. And my mom didn't want me to send it. She was like, you could get in trouble or like you could get face backlash. And I remember literally being like, I don't care this is an issue and I was so angry I was just so I was just livid I was enraged she sent the email to all Los Gatos staff and wrote the entire community was complicit in these issues after she sent it one teacher and football coach replied all he wrote wrong if this young lady has had something bad happen to her in the past she should take it up with the individual who is responsible and that was just really disappointing It's really disappointing to, like, hear teachers and advisors at the school taking sides. The teacher did not respond to requests for comment. Abby worries about the students who faced backlash and lost friends for speaking out. That's why I kept saying, like, please, like, if you get backlash, just send it to me because, like, you guys are still in school and I know how much reputation counts in high school and I know how much it just means jack once you get to college. And I just, I knew, like... I was really scared for them. Megan Farrell is the district's Title IX coordinator. She handles complaints related to sexual abuse. She says the account has been divisive, but she says it's also made the district aware some students feel like they're not doing enough. It's important. The voices of students, if they don't want to come to us, I think we have to understand why that is. But we also need to know what's being complained about in order for us to do our jobs. She says there are many reasons young people are reluctant to turn to their schools to report abuse. They might not be ready to tell their parents or want to talk to the police, whose schools have an obligation to tell. There were no Title IX complaints filed against students in the district in the 2019 to 2020 school year, and only two this school year. Farrell says in response to the account, the district set up an anonymous tip line. So that students would have another outlet to reach out and um, provide any kind of information that they needed to provide to us. And anonymous reports are difficult to investigate, but if we have some information, at least we can go down a road and start looking into a matter. In an email to family members, the superintendent said the district had launched an inquiry into whether the district has a culture that allows abuse to continue. The district has also hired a consultant focused on restorative justice to give community members impacted by these issues a chance to talk. 
Abby Berry says she knows real change will take a long time and a lot of persistence. And she says, if nothing else, the online movement has at least started a conversation that wasn't happening before. I know that, like, regardless of the fact that, like, we may have not been able to, like, change policies or, like, move mountains for the school, we got the town talking about it. We definitely, like, shocked the town. Um, but I think it, like, changed even in a little bit for the better. Over in Mira Mesa, Lynn is still running the San Diego account. Her mom says she's proud of how much she's seen her daughter grow. We're not using her name to protect her identity. I really am grateful that she found the strength to help other people. In middle school and high school, she retreated a bit. But in our household, she's always had a voice. And I think she's finding it again. Lynn never returned to school in person her senior year. And a big reason for that decision is because she didn't want to confront abusers in person. She's headed to college in the fall and plans to continue to advocate for victims there. So I would like to still, you know, be involved with this account and maybe transform it into something bigger or, you know, broaden, you know, the audience of this account. Um, So yeah, I definitely want to keep going with it. Now she's encouraging others at her school to start a club to address sexual assault on campus. The students leading these efforts are hoping the support networks they've built online can find a way to continue in person when more students return to school. For The California Report, I'm Holly J. McDeed. Holly's reporting was supported by the USC Annenberg Center for Health Journalism Impact Fund. And now, an update on a story we first brought you last December. You might have heard the documentary I did about Luna Guzman, a young transgender woman from Guatemala. She lived through years of brutal abuse and discrimination in her hometown, and she dreamed of seeking asylum in California. Yo quiero que el día de mañana todas las personas que me conocen digan, Luna triunfó. Luna luchó por sus sueños y los alcanzó. Luna told me, one day soon, I want everyone who knows me to say, Luna made it. She fought for her dreams, and they came true. I followed Luna for more than two years, from a migrant shelter in Tijuana to an ICE detention center near San Diego. I even tracked her down when she was sick with COVID, fighting for her life in the ICU. Luna has survived so much, from sexual violence to learning she was HIV positive when she was a teenager. Her story and her courage inspired some of our listeners who reached out to ask how they could help. Others did a tribute performance for her at a tiny drag bar in Modesto. At the end of the documentary, though, it seemed like Luna's chances of coming to the U.S. were pretty much over. She'd been held in ICE detention and deported twice. Then a couple weeks ago, I got this message. Hola, Sasha. Buenos días. ¿Cómo estás? Déjame decirte que estoy en los Estados Unidos de América. Estoy en San Diego, California. Ayer logré cruzar. 
Luna was calling me to say that she made it to San Diego. She arrived at the border crossing with the help of an attorney from the Oakland-based Transgender Law Center, who helped her with an application for humanitarian parole. And it was approved, allowing her to come into the U.S. while she waits for another chance to go in front of an immigration judge and ask for protection. Sasha, estoy emocionada como no tienes idea. An organization in New York City called the Queer Detainee Empowerment Project sponsored Luna and is going to help her to find housing, medical care, and a lawyer to represent her in immigration court. They sent her a plane ticket from San Diego to JFK. Wow, mira los snacks. Wow, 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 wow. Luna sent me this video of her at the airport marveling at all the snacks and sodas for sale. Mi primer Coca-Cola. Miren los peluches de California, wow. She's wearing a purple fanny pack and celebrating buying her first Coca-Cola in the U.S. Hola. What? No hablo inglés. Sorry. 22. Short. 322. Uh, sorry, today, second day in United States. Oh, that's good. <laughs> Welcome. Thank you. When she arrived in New York, a volunteer with the Queer Detainee Empowerment Project took her to a shelter that houses transgender women in Jamaica, Queens. She'll eventually be able to get her own apartment through a program in New York City that guarantees housing for people living with HIV. And with her humanitarian parole status, Luna is eligible for Medicaid, which can help her get HIV meds, hormones, or eventually gender-affirming surgery. It almost sounds too good to be true, like some kind of fairy godmother swooped in and gave Luna a start at a whole new life. But I confirmed it all with the project co-director, Jan Stanovich. He's a trans immigrant from Poland, and he says his organization helps with services, but they also give former detainees and trans migrants like Luna a sense of community. I really want to make people's experience of those first few months or, or years in new place as bearable and as, if possible, joyful as we can, because I think we went through so much trauma in our life and painful experiences. It just helps to to go through those experiences together and like support each other in that. In the last two months, Jan's program has been able to sponsor 15 LGBTQ plus migrants from the border, bringing them to New York City, including Luna. She'll still have to present her case in front of an immigration judge in New York, but this time she'll have a lawyer to represent her. And with the pandemic, the backlog of immigration cases could take months, even years, to resolve. While Luna is waiting, she can start to live the life she's dreamed of. She's been sending me these videos of her dancing to street musicians in Times Square and wearing her new pink high tops to take the subway. Okay, ya vamos aquí en el metro de la ciudad de Nueva York. Unas amigas. Mmm, qué rica la pizza americana. Vamos a probar la pizza americana. 
Luna Guzman trying her first slice of New York pizza. She may not have made it to California to pursue her dream just yet, but she's taken a giant leap toward a new future. Estoy viviendo mi sueño, verdad? Tal vez no en California, pero estoy en el estado de Nueva York. Así que estoy tan contenta, no tengo palabras para expresarme. Y pues, este, gracias. Estoy en Estados Unidos. Gracias, gracias, gracias. You can hear a complete documentary about Luna's life called A Butterfly With My Wings Cut Off on our podcast, The California Report Magazine. Here on our show, we've been bringing you tributes to Californians we've lost to COVID. This week, we're going to hear from Vince Chrysostomo, whose dad, Francisco, died from COVID the day before his 87th birthday. Francisco was a retired Air Force veteran, and he caught the virus inside his nursing home in Alameda County. His son, Vince, was devastated. He'd already lost a partner, the love of his life, to AIDS in San Francisco in 1991. And now, 30 years later, COVID killed his father. When this pandemic first hit and we went to shelter in place, I was like, this is so unfair. I can't do this again. Health reporter Leslie McClurg recorded Vince sharing memories of his dad's last year and talking about what it's been like to mourn loved ones during two pandemics. My parents, Francisco and Isabel Chrysostomo, they were born in 1933, so that would have made my dad, they were 86 at this time because it wasn't yet their birthdays. The last time I saw them before Shelter in Place was on February 29th of 2020. I left the facility and I immediately caught a cold or started sniffling. And because at that time, People were already aware of COVID. And then on March 16th, we went into shelter in place. Now to the staggering toll at the nation's nursing homes and assisted living facilities. The outbreak is taking a toll on nursing homes. The governor now issuing a series of mandates tonight, including limiting visitors to nursing homes. According to new data, one out of every three COVID deaths is a nursing home resident or worker. Here now to show. The plus side is that the facility that they're at took very good care of them. They loved my dad. I called one time and they said, oh, guess what? Your father was voted king of the nursing home. They just, you know, the staff there just seemed to love him. He had a really funny sense of humor. He was very dedicated to my mom. I remember some of the nurses saying, you know, they don't make men like that anymore. I think it was August 25th or August 26th of 2020, 6.30 in the morning, and I saw the name of the facility pop up on my phone. I thought, oh, my God, this is that moment that I have been dreading. And they told me that my father had tested positive for COVID. <sighs> so they had to move him immediately into quarantine. You know, he, he's, he's had a bit of dementia, and so trying to explain these things to him was, was not easy. Then I was talking to my mom and the cell phone died while I was talking to her. And so for the next 24 hours, we weren't able to contact them. There were a lot of challenges. You know, the facility was short staff. I think they had like four cases, but it went from four to like 17 cases 
with my parents. My mother was a 17th case. We also had those horrible fires and the orange air and the smoky air. And so their voices would sound scratchy. My dad never left my mom's side. I just imagine what that must have been like for him. And so September 14th comes around. And so I called him that morning and he was so happy. He sounded so clear and he was just like, hi, Vince, so clear and just sounded, you know, his voice had been scratchy and he just sounded so present. They were released from quarantine and they said, you know, he greeted everyone with, good morning, America, we're back. And 10 minutes later, they found him on the floor. He'd collapsed. They didn't know what hospital he was going to. So we lost track of him for like two hours. But what happened was his heart started to give out. And on September 16th, they told me that, you know, he's not, we don't think he's going to make it. And they said, you should come as soon as you can. So I left with my roommate. But by the time we got to the car, they called that, you know, he, your father passed. So my last image of my father is seeing him do a glass wall and just him. It's kind of eerie. You think you only see these things on TV, but it's just his body. And he's a small man, like he's 5'2". The machines behind him, kind of dark, just kind of flickering. That was what I got to see, you know. So the next morning, um, I called my mom and she said, Vince, did your dad die? And I'm like, yes, mom. Do you remember we talked about this? Like, but he came to see me this morning. And I was like, what? He said, good morning, Beck. That's what he called her. Her name is Isabel, but he called her Beck. And she said, your father's a good man. She said, and I love him. I said, mom, you were married to him for 62 years. One of the other state pieces that happened, um, I lost my partner to HIV in on October 6, 1991. His name was Jesse. And the last thing to give out was his heart and was my dad. That was what gave out, you know, was his heart. They've just taught me so much. I probably lost the two most significant male figures in my life to epidemics. Losing Jesse, losing my father has been incredibly painful. But what heals and where the beauty is, is that love that I had for both of those men. And, you know, I can tell you what a friend of mine told me is that when you go through all this grief and you go through all this loss, you're standing in pain and beauty simultaneously. COVID, as hard as it was, has been a chance to heal. It's like we can't have all these losses and not have it mean anything. You know, what did we learn? We need to breed optimism and hope for a better world. You know, I don't know how many chances we're going to get.
was Vince Chrysostomo. His tribute to his dad was produced by KQED health reporter Leslie McClurg. And that's the California Report magazine for this week. We're a production of KQED Public Radio in San Francisco. Our senior editor is Victoria Maleon. Amanda Font is our director, and our engineer is Brendan Willard. Our team also includes Mary Franklin Harvin, Julia McAvoy, and Hector Arsate. And I'm Sasha Coca. You can follow me on Twitter at KQED Sasha Coca. This is the California Report magazine. Your state, your stories. Hi, it's Terry Gross, the host of Fresh Air. We bring you in-depth, long-form interviews with actors, directors, musicians, authors, journalists, and more. Listen to our Peabody Award-winning Fresh Air podcast from WHYY and NPR. Hey there, this is Brittany Luce from NPR's It's Been a Minute. KQED's podcasts like The Bay, Bay Curious, Mind Shift, Right Nowish, and more all tell the stories of the Bay and beyond with reliable, human-centered journalism. They aim to inspire, make you think, entertain, and expand your understanding of the place you call home. Here's how you can support podcasting at KQED. Showing your support is easy, and you can join Brittany in supporting KQED Podcast too at donate.kqed.org slash podcast. That's donate.kqed.org slash podcast.